This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 13th of January 2024. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with Simon Brook. And then... I think part of what makes Keith's work so resonant is that the issues that he dealt with in his time persist. Monocle's Thomas Lewis visits the Art Gallery of Ontario for an exhibition on the life and activism of artist Keith Haring. First, though, here's the news. The United States carried out an additional strike against Yemen's Houthi forces overnight after President Joe Biden's administration vowed to protect shipping in the Red Sea. The latest strike, which the US said targeted a radar site, came a day after dozens of American and British strikes on the Iran-backed group's facilities. Polling has closed in Taiwan's presidential and parliamentary elections, which China has framed as a choice between war and peace. There's no electronic absentee, proxy or early voting, and the results should be clear by late this evening. And New Zealand's former Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern married her longtime partner, Clark Gayford, in a private ceremony today, finally tying the knot after cancelling ceremonies during strict COVID-19 controls she imposed on the country. She became a global icon for left-leaning politics and women in leadership and is one of just two women to give birth as a national leader. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina and with me in the studio is the freelance journalist and communications consultant Simon Brooke. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. I don't think we've seen each other since the new year. No, we haven't. Is it? It's not too late to say Happy New Year, is it? I don't know. Should there be a statute of limitations on that? <laughs> well, somebody possibly. told me it's the end of January that you have to stop, but right. I suppose right. yeah, okay. nobody's going to be prosecuted, are they? So, I mean, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know about you, but what this New Year has brought for me is just this feeling of absolute impending doom. It, it's really frightening, isn't it? I mean, I think on the plus side, it's great that we're seeing so many um, elections uh, taking place. More people will will vote, of course, this year than have ever voted in the history of of humanity, which is good news for democracy, I suppose, provided that they are all fair and everything. But yeah, certainly the geopolitical situation has probably never looked grimmer, has it? At least not in 70 years or something. Exactly. Uh, and well, let's let's focus in on, on, on the one thing that's making headlines today. And of course, that is the attacks on the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. The New York Times has the headline, the regional war no one wanted is here. How wide will it get? And it's analysing uh, this next stage of the US-led attacks in Yemen. Yeah, exactly. So with um, uh, American-led strikes on 30 sites, uh, nearly 30 sites in Yemen, on Thursday and also uh, yesterday as well. Um, <clears throat> the, the White House has, according to the New York Times, said that everything the president has been doing has been trying to prevent an escalation of conflict, including the strikes last night, i.e. Uh, just earlier this week. But uh, what is really coming across is the fact that um, this is, as the paper says, a clear shift in strategy that after issuing a series of warnings, according to officials at the White House, the president felt that his hand was forced after a barrage of missile and drone attacks 
on Tuesday were directed at the American cargo ships. So to some extent, there's obviously a commercial imperative here, you know, that governments around the world have been doing everything they can to control inflation. And, and certainly in in Europe and the US, it does look as if inflation is going in the, the right direction. So I think there's a concern that if you get this disruption to world trade and companies are going to be hit uh, commercially, then they're going to have to put at their prices. And so I think that's part of it. But certainly the New York Times analysis makes it clear that even though the, the US doesn't want an escalation, doesn't want to get dragged into this and is making clear that it wants a limited theatre, if you like, the, the the powder keg is in great danger of being lit across the whole of the Middle East. Mm. Of course, there are many pieces saying that Iran doesn't want this either, that it's ill-prepared, it doesn't have the resources right now, it doesn't have the manpower and really doesn't want to get sucked into this. Yeah, exactly. And um, obviously we've seen um, in terms of Iranian support for Hezbollah and Hamas, that's been sort of limited. Um, uh, as you say, obviously concerns about whether it the effect that it would have I think domestically as well, given that we've seen demonstrations and political instability in Iran. I think that's a big um, concern for them. But as the uh, New York Times piece points out, to what extent are, are the, Iran- the Iranians in control of these uh, other groups? And to what extent are people like the Houthis um, dragging Iran into it. It's really unclear, um, you know, who holds the whip hand here. Absolutely. Uh, let's move to France because there are a lot of moving parts in the French political system right now. A bit of a row about Rashida Dati coming back to the cabinet. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the new um, prime minister who was appointed earlier this week, Gabriel Attal, is putting together with President Macron his cabinet. And one of the really surprising appointments has been Rashida Dati, um, who uh, was a defector from the Republicans, the old uh, Republican Party, and was very close to Nicolas Sarkozy, the former president. She's now mayor of the 7th arrondissement in Paris, but more importantly, she's seen as a bit of a fighter, really, and quite a controversial character. There's a lovely story that when she arrived in the culture ministry, which is where she's been appointed, she said, don't be afraid of me, which, if you have to say it, is <laughs> a really good reason, not lovely to meet you, we should work with you sort of thing but uh, she's also the first muslim woman to hold a major government post yes she is absolutely and you know and she is a very striking woman very attractive a lot of people would say who somebody who's not afraid to uh to speak as she finds and to you know promote her own uh, personality if you like um interesting sort of the politics of why this is happening it does seem to be that perhaps Macron is making a judgment that this will appeal to the right. He's got to appeal to the right of his own party, um, uh, of course. Um, But then he also has to see off um, the national rally, Marine Le Pen's party as well. So, um, and you'll remember that uh, just in the last few months, um, Macron has fought very hard to get his new law about immigration through the National Assembly, and it wasn't easy. So presumably he's looking to sort of keep the right on side. On the other hand, as Le Monde points out, the risk is, of course, that he's going to upset a lot of uh, MPs on the left of his party who might now be allying themselves with the Socialist Party or with uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's La France uh, Insoumise, the the more left-wing party. Mm. Let's have a look at Gabriel Attal because, of course, he is the new Prime Minister. Really interesting man, really nice-looking man too. (laughs) Uh, And uh, very, very young. Very ridiculously young, um, 34. So he is the youngest prime minister of the French Republic. Um, 
the only one who is openly gay as well, which and 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 I think he's handled that issue well. He did an interview a few years ago um, when he said, "Yes, I'm gay. I'm not going to hide it. So what?" Sort of thing. There has been some sort of speculation about his um, relationship um, with Stefan Sergeonne, uh, another uh, senior official within the party who has a sort of political trajectory trajectory like his and also like President Macron's as well. Um, he is now the Europe Minister. And I have to say, when I read that, I thought, gosh, that's, a, that's interesting, isn't it? It'd be interesting conversations across the breakfast table. Um, but it's interesting that it, and certainly what I picked up anyway, it was only a bit later that it was revealed that in fact the two are no longer in a civil partnership, so they're sort of ex-partners, but still an interesting relationship. Absolutely. Although there, there does seem to be, there's some uncertainty about that. People are not quite sure where whether the, the relationship's over or not. But nevertheless, we have these two really young, really bright men uh, doing, well, we hope it's going to be a great job. <laughs> well, we do. And I think what's interesting here is, of course, um, you know, talking about that sort of party management that Macron is so involved in at the moment and trying to manage. You've also got um, uh, Olaf Scholz in, in Germany, also, you know, also having to keep his coalition together. So um, what does that mean for Europe, uh, European leadership, if the Franco-German axis, which is traditionally what has led Europe, if the leaders of both those countries are now completely focused internally on that mm. kind of minute party management, given what's happening in Ukraine, given what seems to be happening in the US, um, who is leading Europe? Yeah. Let's go back to uh, relationships and <laughs> the speculation ever whether these two are still together or not. Because, as we were saying in our headlines, Jacinta Ardern, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, has finally married her first bloke, uh, Clark Gayford. Now, of course, she had to put off the wedding, I think, twice because of legislation that she'd introduced. They've now got a five-year-old daughter uh, who was the first baby to be taken to the UN, I think, <laughs> which is wonderful. Uh, and they got... They got married today which is lovely uh, such nice news i think i think one of the really i mean i have to say i thought she already was married but then uh you know that you kind of make these assumptions sort of things but when i saw this story i thought this is really nice because um so often when somebody leaves politics especially when they are quite young and again we're probably thinking of the french political leadership as well but you know we've seen it in other parts of the world haven't we what do you do um you know you've you've you're still in the prime of your uh, of your life and yet you've um left the most senior office in the country or whatever mm. so the idea that you just kick back and say actually i'm going to get married now to my long-term partner and uh, enjoy the kind of normal, happy married life that really most people enjoy but politicians, senior politicians especially mm. find so difficult, I think is really lovely. lovely. Good news. She's been doing some fellowships at Harvard I believe as well um, There are a few protesters at her wedding mostly anti-vaxxers oh. Oh uh, but well, it, the, the pictures were beautiful yeah. and one can only yeah. just wish them both well, I mean, I, I she was a, such a, a kind of feminist icon. Oh, completely. And, and as you're saying at the, the, the top of the show, you know, there's so much bad news at, around at the moment. Yet here is some, here is some cheerful, cheering political news, which is which is lovely, isn't it? Okay. Well, I'm sorry to rain on your parade, but <laughs> <laughs> when we look at Iowa, I'm not sure that that's so cheering. Okay. <laughs> so we're talking about the Iowa caucuses uh, and seeing who really has the edge in the first 2024 contest for um, for US president. This is from Politico. Yeah, exactly. So Politico has got together a group of um, <clears throat> journalists from Iowa, people who have been on the ground 
uh, at the Caucasus, this incredibly complicated uh, Caucasus system that Iowa has. Of course, Iowa is so important because it um, really, uh, it's the first caucus, it's the first uh, indication of how the uh, various politicians are doing in terms of getting the nomination. Um, And I think certainly from what these journalists are saying, what they've been seeing on the ground, you really get a sense that the Trump campaign is far more organised, far more disciplined, far better resourced than it was uh, 2016, that it's taking nothing for granted. Um, They've got these uh, Iowa captains who are um, organising local supporters. And also, I think it's interesting that if you put this in a broader context across the country, one of the things that the Trump, well, the Republican Party under Trump has been doing is to to sort of change some of the arrangements to make it easier for him to become uh, the nominee. So worth remembering that last time he lost in Iowa, he lost to Ted Cruz. So I think given how we know Trump feels about losing, probably there's an extra incentive here to mm. uh, to win this state. Although he hasn't really been campaigning there. And of course, this week, he spent two days in court. Well, well, this is the other question. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, he's he's been doing as much as he can. But this is the big debate. I mean, we're coming up to, in a couple of months time, Super Tuesday, the time when um, a number, a large number of states will uh, have their nomination uh, competitions uh, contests, and then we'll see who wins. And don't forget that Trump has a camp has a legal case just before uh, Super Tuesday. So the question is, how much time will he be able to spend out on the stump campaigning, and how much time will he have to spend in court? It's interesting the way we've seen just in the the, the case this week when he was reprimanded by a judge for essentially giving a party political speech in Mm. court. So I think you can see how his campaign team feel that actually that that could be a a problem for them. But if anything, they're going to use the courts as a sort of a stump, an opportunity for stump speeches. And of course, against that, you've seen the polls as well, showing that uh, for Trump supporters, um, these these, uh, legal battles don't have any uh, detrimental effect on him at all. If anything, it's the opposite. You know, it's that idea the deep state is out to get our man. So Legally, morally, going after Trump might be the right thing. Unfortunately, in sort of political campaigning terms, it's an absolute gift to him. Absolutely. Now, look, you have found this story, which I'm finding really disturbing. Uh, It's from The Conversation, and the headline is, The animal sounds in most nature documentaries are made by humans. Yeah, I feel sort of cheated by this. It's um, it's sort of, it, it's I've, I've had absolutely no idea, but in according to the conversation, which is this uh, regular update on uh, <laughs> academic research, uh, lecturers in uh, film and a lecturer, Damien Pollard, who's a lecturer in film at Northumberland uh, University, tells us exactly that in BBC series such as Planet Earth, um, uh, you would be assumed that these animal, these sounds you hear coming from animals are coming from animals, but apparently they're not. Um, they're created by human beings who are especially uh, skilled at this, known as Foley artists. You know, these are the people who uh, make noises and create the sound effects um, for films or something. But amazingly, when you see some wild animal being... Uh, pursued or observed by David Attenborough, that noise is not coming from the wild animal. So why? Some... <laughs> why? Why do they do this? Well, it looks like it's a sort of um, technical reason, really. It just makes it a lot easier to, to do this than um, to record them out in, in the in the real because world, there are so many crew and all I the rest of it, a lot of background noise. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing in yeah. here that I'd quite like to, to yeah. pick up on. It talks yeah. about um, 
<laughs> it talks about snakes and it says oh, you hear a slithery, slimy sound which is matched to the image of a snake. Even if a human would be unlikely to hear much if they were really stood next to the camera, you wouldn't... I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that, it's playing into what we think we might, we should hear. Yeah, I think, well, I think this is, I think what this piece explores is that difficult that tension, if you like, between uh, science and entertainment. Um, you know, so many millions of people around the world watch these programmes and it's great because they take an interest in wildlife and they campaign for the protection of wildlife and things. But let's face it, if it was a kind of academic treatise into, uh, you know, animal biology or something, it would be deadly dull. So, um, yeah, how do, you, how do you play into that entertainment, lean into the entertainment piece and uh, make it a snake without making it too sort of Walt Disney-ish, really, I suppose? <laughs> OK, I want to give us a dose of culture now. In Toronto at the moment, one of the largest retrospectives of the late artist Keith Haring is on display at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Its title is taken from one of Haring's most familiar slogans, art is for everybody. And Monocle's correspondent Thomas Lewis went along for us to find out more about the exhibition and the artist it celebrates. My name is Gil Vasquez. I'm the president and executive director of the Keith Haring Foundation. I met Keith in 1988, May of 1988. I was about a month away from my 18th birthday. And Keith... He expanded my world to, to something that, you know, I did not know existed. He exposed me to things that I had no idea about. Taught me about art, taught me about life, taught me about travel, taught me not only about his art, but, but other people's art. People who he was a fan of, people like Liget, people like Alashinsky, Matisse, Picasso. So for me, it was uh, an education. It was a total immersive education. I, I think in a sense, you know, Keith drew inspiration from graffiti writers. So graffiti guys, there's an expression called getting up. And getting up means that your tag or your signature is going to be on as many objects as humanly possible, whether it was a subway train, a desk, uh, a lamppost, anything. So getting up was like supremely important for graffiti writers. And Keith sort of took that to heart when he drew on absolutely anything, on almost anything. Everything that he had access to it, it could turn into art at any, at any given moment. I had no idea that he didn't do any preparatory drawings underneath the bigger scale things, which is totally mind-boggling to me, given how structural they are. Not only did he not make sketches for large-scale or any-scale things, but he would not even step back from them. So as he's painting them in these monumental scales, he's never stepping back to look at his work. He is in the work until he is not until it's done, and then he can finally step back and see what he's done. So that is pretty remarkable. My name is Sarah Lawyer. I'm a curator and exhibitions manager at The Broad in Los Angeles, and I organized this exhibition, Keith Haring Art is for Everybody. The quality of the line, the weight of the line, the way that it is sort of uniform across these extremely complex compositions um, at a very large scale often is something that he comes to pretty quickly too. I think as you go through the exhibition, you'll see that there is a transformation over time from 
sort of simpler, almost singular compositions on smaller canvas tarps, and then uh, a transition to these much more complex compositions. But really, that happens in the in the course of like four years. It felt important to represent the breadth of his career. He really only worked for just over a decade, so we're talking about just you know. 11, 11 and a half years of mature work. And I could have filled this space many times over with the amount of work that he made in that time. He was extremely prolific. So to me, it was important to focus in on what I think of as the key element of his work, which is the title of the show, Art is for Everybody. And really, that was a mantra for him that he said he wrote that in his journals at the age of 20, right when he moved to New York, and he thought of it as a responsibility, that that was the responsibility of the artist, to make work that could reach as many people as possible. He really believed in art's ability to affect change. So you can see that in, in the work, and I wanted to really lean into that as the theme. I think his purpose for making art was to be of service. I think it's, it really was simply that. I think it was, it was generosity, it was simplicity, but complexity at the same time. You know, he could be really accessible and draw, you know, human figures that, that were dancing and, and seemed to be moving even though they were static. And then he could make a really intense political statement against police brutality and, and something that is, you know, really ugly. It was a tragically short life. He died at the age of 31 in 1990 of AIDS-related illness. But really there are some key themes within that time period that really come through. And one is his dedication to community. And that, I think, comes through in the, the activism in the work, but also just the way that he showed up for people, the way that he used his imagery and celebrity to support causes from, you know, AIDS activism to famine relief in Ethiopia, you know, all sorts of things that he brought, um, brought together people, hosted benefits, did all of this work that was really on the ground and with the community. I think that's that's one sort of major thing that comes through. And that's not to say he didn't also just enjoy celebrity. He was very clearly interested in celebrity. Um, Warhol was a mentor of his. Um, I think that's that's very clear in the work also. I think part of what makes Keith's work so resonant is that the issues that he dealt with in his time persist. So there, there are parallels. And I think that's why the, the work still means something because there are no solutions for those persistent issues yet. But despite all of that, Keith Haring was a, was a hopeful person by the way you described it and his work ultimately, even if it was a piece of protest, had some elements of hope to it. Absolutely. There was always hope. There's hope in the work. When you look at the work, uh, sometimes it is poignant, it is very direct in its criticism of government, of systems, but there is always hope in the work. That was Monocle's Thomas Lewis at the National Gallery of Ontario. Keith Haring, Art is for Everybody, is on until the 17th of March. Uh, he's also been in the news because of a bit of controversy about his work known as Unfinished Painting, which he did in 1989, uh, the year before he died. Uh, AI has completed this. Tell us more about this, Simon. Um, yes. So this is um, a, a painting, as you say, that uh, that he... he uh, 
uh, created is just known as unfinished painting dated 1989 yes um, um, in its upper left hand quadrant uh, the black and white lines form stylized patterns on a purple background and there are streaks of purple paint and things but having but he did uh, un- intentionally leave the work unfinished and the idea is that this is uh, as a commentary on the AIDS crisis and quite a sort of poignant uh, especially given that when he died it would have been very much I mean there was no good news then you know being diagnosed with a was a death sentence wasn't it so very poignant uh, way of marking um, the AIDS crisis mm. uh, but people are very cross because they say this is not what he intended for the for the painting and also AI it's 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 not it's not painting with feeling or intent it's just well it's just generative it's just it's absolutely well I've, I'm not very cross but I just think I forgot, <laughs> I'm kind of eye rolling I mean we all know that AI is happening it's incredibly useful for all kinds of different things but this is the kind of thing uh, I say this as a writer as well who's re- re- regularly being told that it's going to put me out of a job this is the kind of thing where we really don't need ai for i mean of all the stupid things um but i think generally the idea of unfinished work you know uh, schubert's uh, unfinished symphony and also massive attacks unfinished symphony you know the the mystery of edwin drood by charles dickens i think unfinished work by an artist whether it was intentionally unfinished or whether it was just left after they died i think it's a fascinating concept isn't it where would it have gone and um it's a question about sort of restoration i suppose isn't it should we be allowed to to try and finish it or is it more respectful just to say this is how it is let's give it that dignity that element of mystery imagining what what would have been mm. and if it is if we can finish it should it be done by ai or by humans i mean one we've been talking so much about ai recently uh when we were talking just the other day about uh, how many jobs are, are going to go particularly in terms of uh, learning languages duolingo now has sacked a load of people and they're just using ai for that uh, but one thing that's really struck me with uh, a couple of um uh plane stories aviation stories this last few weeks is that had AI been in charge I'm not sure that the result would have been so fantastic <laughs> particularly when you when you look at what happened in Japan with that with that gel aircraft landing in flames and the very human stuff getting everybody yeah. right off is AI can't do that can <laughs> it and I think this is the thing people are realizing at the moment perhaps it'll change but of course AI if you're looking for factual information, doesn't understand the difference between something it is veri- verifiable fact and just nonsense. So a case, for instance, a few months ago in the US where a law firm was fined because they tried to use AI to write a court submission and the judge said this is absolute nonsense, thrown out, and they were fined $5,000 for doing that. So, um, yeah, let's not get too excited yet about AI. <laughs> uh, let's go to the South China Morning Post, uh, which is talking about Cathay Pacific, uh, Hong Kong's uh, airline uh, And it says that uh, there's been a wave of cancellations over Christmas and New Year that affected the travel arrangements of many travellers and and that it's still going on. Cathay Pacific has apologised for this. They blamed it on pilot illness and various other other, um, things. Tell us more about this. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, when I saw it was pilot illness, I thought, well, I'd rather the pilot was ill before they got on the plane and started flying <laughs> than during. But anyway, yeah. but um, it, yeah, it, it uh, sick pilots highlighted uh, the, the airline has highlighted that maintaining service on the coming festive season, uh, you know, as was was a priority. But um, uh, the South China Morning Post speculates that uh, problems run much deeper than its overstretched staffing as industry insiders question if the fiasco will derail the the carrier's plan to return to full capacity this year. Um, And I think uh, it's that usual thing that people 
find upsetting and annoying about transport cancellations, which is what's happening. When, you know, am I going to be rebooked? Am I going to get compensation? All this kind of thing. And I think it's difficult for Cathay Pacific because, I mean, certainly my impression is they've always been considered one of the best airlines in the world, haven't they? I mean, we all know the rubbish carriers, but but they've always had a very good reputation. So in terms of reputation management, it'll be interesting to see how they can turn this around, do that classic thing of apologising completely, unreservedly, telling us what you're going to do about it, and then um, giving us an idea of how things will be better. Mm. And, and how are people sort of reacting to this? I mean, because it's become quite a big discussion there. There, hasn't it? They're looking at the routes that have been most affected. Uh, uh, quite a lot to Taipei, Singapore, Bangkok, Beijing. Um, so, I mean, it's mostly within Asia, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, there are obviously some international flights as well, and the paper points out that uh, there are, you know, if you're flying to the EU, for instance, or from the EU on Cathay Pacific, there are special regulations on air passenger rights that apply to all flights that uh, uh, depart or arrive uh, for from the EU um, as long as the EU carrier is a, as long as the carrier is an EU one so uh, obviously if you're not you know flying on Cathay Pacific you're in a good position slightly more difficult if you are sort of thing but um, uh, yeah it, it does seem to be affecting uh, mainly as you say f- the Far East as well but there are uh, international flights sorry uh, you know transcontinental flights as well um, that have also Vancouver as well is is mentioned um, as one of the destinations as well. So, um, yeah, as I said, it'll be interesting to see what effect this has on the brand of Cathay Pacific, how quickly they can turn it around, and also the sort of economic issues that might uh, mm. arise from this as well. Simon, just before we go, we've time for one more headline. I don't propose we discuss this story, but perhaps you'd like to read us the headline from the respectable Daily Telegraph. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's shocking, isn't it, really? But um, who would believe it that the Telegraph could do such a thing? But one of the things I love about the Telegraph is that not only uh, is it a sort of serious newspaper or whatever, but also it does allow for the lightest... Is this the lighter side? I'm not sure. Anyway, the headline is, Escort, Escort who cut off eunuch maker's penis, said it was one for the bucket list. Well, it's the beginning of the year, isn't it? So <laughs> what else can you add to your list? I think that's pretty extreme, isn't it? (laughs) Um, That's in the Telegraph if you want to look it up yourself. We don't intend to go there. Simon, thank you very much indeed. That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan, and of course to my guest, Simon Brooke. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.